Thank you. All right, so now we're going to really shift gears, all right? So um, I was reminded of an experience that I had a couple of years ago when, uh, when I was reading, rereading this text for today. You know, some of you know my youngest son works in the city. So there's one day he, he, he calls me up, and, and it's, he's on lunch break. He said, Dad, I got, got out of lunch, went out for lunch, hopped on the tee, went up two stops, got off, and there is the Patriots championship parade going by. You know, he says, Dad, Tom Brady, Rob Gronkowski's always got, you know, and Bill Belichick and the crap. So I'm like, and I'm thinking, you know, I've never been to a championship parade. Anybody, anybody ever gone in for the championship parades? See, I should have skipped school and done the same thing back when Bobby Orr was scoring the goals or, or Larry Bird was winning championship for us. And I mean, we just had a flood of them since 2000, right, with the Patriots and the Red Sox and the Celtics and the Bruins and never been to a championship parade. But those are all stage parades. But the text we're going to read today kind of gives us the feel that this is a spontaneous parade. And, and I want to kind of challenge that thought pattern as we work through our text today. So we've been, for those of you just kind of jumping in, we, we, we've been working through a series called Peaks and Valleys. And really our primary objective has just been to look at the experiences that Jesus had in the final seven or eight days of his life. And for the most part, we've been focusing in on lesser known experiences, right? You know, today's doesn't qualify. You know, when you have a whole Sunday set aside for triumphal entry, you know, it doesn't really qualify as, as a lesser known event in the life of Jesus, because this is one of the major components. But we've looked at an, a number of events that, through this journey, and, and our desire has really been kind of twofold. One simply is we just want to understand what the Bible teaches us more clearly. You know, the tr- if we know the truth, the truth will set us free. And we've simply trying to understand what it is that Jesus experienced and what he has taught us through that so that you and I can experience the kind of freedom that comes from it. In many ways, it kind of brings Jesus off the page and makes him much more 3D for us, a real person for us to relate to. But we've also been kind of asking, well, when we look at this, are, are, there, are there any insights from us from the scriptures that kind of help us navigate the peaks and valleys of our own journey? Because we have good days, and we have bad days. We have good seasons. We have very hard seasons. What are the things that we can learn that help us navigate that journey through our own peaks and valleys? And as I'm looking around, I see some of you, and, and I know that you're in moments of valleys. Others of you are in, in, in moments where you're just reaching the peak or, or anticipating the peak coming. And there's lots of things for us to learn. So, again, if you have your Bibles out, we're just gonna, I just want to read through the text for us. And then I want to make some observations for us about this spontaneous parade. And then we'll back up and, uh, and glean a couple of thoughts for us. Beginning with the 28th verse of Luke chapter 19, 891, if you're using one of our pew Bibles. It says, when he had said these things, this is Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. A little context. We started our series a few weeks ago where Jesus had come down from Galilee. He had been on his way to Jerusalem for a number of weeks, but he finally got to Jericho where he heals the blind man named Bartimaeus, and Zacchaeus comes to have faith in Christ. He's experienced all this transformation, and he makes his way up to Jerusalem. It's a 17-mile journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. So just a good day's walk, right? But you go up 3,500 feet or so to get to Jerusalem from Jericho, from the Jordan River Valley all the way up to Jerusalem, which is on the... On the and so Jesus is making this journey, right? And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples 
and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. And tie it and bring it here. So if anyone asks you, if anybody tries to stop you, what, what, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. And those who were sent left. They found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the young donkey, the owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their robes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they were spreading their robes on the road. And as we read out of the Matthew account, when those also people grabbed branches from trees, palm trees, and spread them out on the road ahead of them. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God. And remember, not only Jesus' entourage of the 12, and there's probably some, if not all, of the 120 who are traveling with him, but, but there's also all these pilgrims from Galilee, right? They're also coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, right? And so these are the ones who had been hearing about and seeing Jesus up by the Sea of Galilee, performing miracles and teaching, whatever. They're all a part of it. And he says, and, and, and now he came near down the Mount of All, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they'd seen. And we know from the other accounts in Matthew, Mark, and, and, and John that, that, that it literally was a whole, it was like a flash mob, right? They just kind of all joined in the, and created this huge parade. And they're crying out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. So some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Paraphrase for our day. Jesus, you've got to tell these people to shut up. Right? He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As he approached and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes, for the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They're going to crush you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize, you did not see, you did not respond to the time of your visitation. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Again, I think for a lot of us, we, we kind of see this this parade that Jesus has as he enters into Jerusalem is something that just really occurred spontaneously, right? You know, they got a donkey. Maybe he's tired as he's getting to the city, whatever, and he's using his, his, his divine clairvoyance. He knows right where the donkey is, sends some guys out. All of a sudden, flash mobs, huge parade going on. I don't think that's the case at all. And I think for us to really understand this experience and get things right in our own lives related to what this passage teaches us, we need to understand that this was not a spontaneous event, but this was a planned act. You know, I, I think that, that Jesus had made intentional preparations for this parade to take place. You know, I, I think in, through some of his journeys in Jerusalem and others, he had made arrangements on this particular day that there would be a colt of a donkey that had never been written on would be sitting and waiting for him. And he had a, he had a password set up, right? A clue saying, you know what? If you go and you begin to untie it, 
And, the, and anybody says, what are you doing? Just tell them, because this is a prearranged passcode. The Lord needs it. And so, I, you know, so, and as they're coming into Jerusalem, I believe Jesus orchestrates this whole thing. This is a planned act. It is an intentional act. It is the deliberate act. But in addition to all of that, I want you to understand that this is also a, a defiant act of courage, right? If one of, the, one of the hard parts for us is that, you know, we read through the Gospel of Luke, and yet there's pieces to the story that we see in the Gospel of Matthew. There's pieces that we don't see in Matthew or in Luke that we see in Mark, and there's pieces that we see in John that we don't see in any of the other three. But when we put all of the Gospel messages together, and you kind of put them in sequence, chronological order, what you'll recognize is that well before Jesus ever reached the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem, the the chief priests and scribes, those who were in charge of the religious leadership of the community, they had already put a bounty out on Jesus' head. You go look at John chapter 11, verse 57, and even some of the verses that are just before then. People ask him questions like, well, certainly he's not going to come to the Passover, right? Because they know, he knows that the leaders have already put a bounty on his head saying, if you know where he is and you tell us there's money in it, they've already passed that word out. And so, you know, and, and so certainly he's not just going to come up and just kind of waltz in, you know, kind of idea. If he's going to come to the Passover at all, he's going to pull an Osama bin Laden, right? He's going to go incognito, try to go underground, live someplace where nobody knows where he's at. He's just going to try to keep the lowest of the lowest of the lowest profiles he can. And Jesus doesn't do that. He, he knows there's a bounty on his head, right? He knows that they're looking for him. And, and, and using our language, his thought pattern is, how can we get the most cameras pointed at me? How, how can I draw the most attention to myself? And so he, he, he gathers up, he prepares his plan, and he walks in, and, and, and there's no way you miss him, right? I mean, everybody's celebrating him or whatever, and people are talking about him all over the city. Everybody knows that he's there. And it's a, it's a tremendous act of courage, a courage that is rooted in the fact that he came for a mission, and no matter what the consequences, he was going to fulfill that mission. You know, sometimes I think we read the, 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 you know, the Garden of Gethsemane experience, and he's agonizing over the cross and et cetera, and his humanity is really struggling with death, and, and, and I think a lot of us can relate to that. But we kind of look at that, and we say, you know, say, hey, you know Jesus wasn't, this was a tremendous act of courage and defiance. Everything was stacked up against him, but God had called him to a mission and he wasn't going to back off of it. And so he, he, just, he just steps into the limelight and says, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. You see, there's a purpose for this event. Jesus, there's a purpose for this event. This is a purposeful declaration. What, what I really want you to see out of this is that this is an object lesson, right? We, we've already seen in just the previous verses of chapter 19 that the disciples themselves, they're the inner circle, right? These are the guys who had the most access to the teacher, and they're clueless, right? You know, he's talking about dying and resurrecting the third day, and they're saying, hey, you know what? When you set up your cabinet, we want the right and the left, you know, and, and they don't have any idea of what's going to happen, and he's been teaching them not once, not twice, three times already. In just recent days, he's talking about what's going to They don't get any idea of it. 
you put it out to the masses, they have no clue. He's been teaching for three years. They have no idea who he is. And Jesus says, you know what? Let me get the point across. And so Jesus engages in an object lesson. This is classic prophetic stuff in the scriptures. The prophets often would resort to object lessons when the nation just didn't get it, right? When, when they'd be teaching, saying, thus saith the Lord, and laying all this stuff out, and going right by the people. And they say, you know what, let me, let me boil it down to the limit. And they would just act out a message. Let me give you a couple examples. When, when as you know, there was Saul and David and Solomon. And Solomon kind of wavered as a king at the end. And God decided that he was going to take part of the kingdom away from David's line. And that all started into place with Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son, who came to the throne. And so, and, and so he, God used, a, God said, well, I'm going to create the separation. And people are not really getting that kind of thing. So God, God sends a prophet, a guy most of us don't know is we've never heard of before. His name is Ahijah. And he goes out and he meets the guy by the name of Jeroboam, who's going to become the king of the northern nation that we know as Israel. And so he, he comes up and God has led this prophet to buy a new cloak. So he's bought a new garment that he's wearing. And when he meets Jeroboam on the road, he stops him and he takes the garment and he tears it into 12 pieces. And then he counts out one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and he hands those pieces to Jeroboam and said, "You get to rule ten, twa- ten of the twelve tribes." I mean, you can't miss the message, right? I mean, it's pretty vivid. Another example. This is an interesting one. Um, Jeremiah did this a lot, right? The weeping prophet, that kind of thing. But there was a time when God told Jeremiah. He said, this is what I want you to do, Jeremiah. People aren't getting the message. You're talking until you're blue in the face. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go buy a new pair of underwear. This is really in the Bible, believe it or not. So this might be an incentive to go read Jeremiah. He says, I want you to go buy a new pair of underwear. He says, then I want you to put them on. So Jeremiah goes and he buys a new pair of underwear and he puts them on. And, And the imagery is that God had bought Israel out of slavery and he had brought them in and brought them into a very intimate relationship with himself, right? He had brought, he literally made them a part of his loins, if you will. So then he says to Jeremiah, now I want you to take the underwear off. And I want you to go all the way to the Euphrates River and I want you to bury it. Just get up there, find a good secluded spot, dig a hole in the ground, bury it, put a rock on it, and just leave it. So Jeremiah takes this week's-long hike up to the Euphrates Rivers. Some of the symbolism is that the Israelites were, you know, the nation was looking to the north for support against other enemies and that kind of stuff instead of looking to God. And so he brings it up there, and he buries it by the Euphrates Rivers. He comes back. Life goes on. It says, doesn't tell us how long, but after a long while, right, God says to Jeremiah, you know what? Remember those underwears that you buried up in Euphrates? I want you to go dig them up. So he goes back, and he digs them up. And he brings it back, and, and I mean, tide's not fixing these things, right? They're just, they're just ruined, right? And, and God said, all right, I want you to hold them up in front of the people. He said, this is what you are like to me. I, I, I bought you and wanted you to bring you into the closest relationship with me, and you have spoiled yourself that I can't even embrace you anymore. It's an object lesson, right? That's what Jesus is doing here. This is an object lesson. You know, it, it, 
It, it, it didn't get past the Pharisees what Jesus was saying, right? They, they weren't sure he was saying it on purpose, but he, they actually knew what the message was and everything that was happening. Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem, and the way that he's coming in, riding on a donkey with with, with uh, uh, cloaks laid out before him, the people singing Hosanna to the king, blessed is the king. They're, they're thinking, Zechariah 9, 9, 7, Jesus is saying, listen, if you ever had any doubt about who I claim to be, I am telling you now, in no uncertain terms, I am the one. I'm the Messiah. I am the chosen one that God has said, sent. That no fancy teaching, no scripture turning around, this kind of stuff. I, I'm laying out to you as clear as I can. I am acting out the message. I am the one. I am the chosen one. I am the Messiah. I am the one in whom deliverance and redemption is found. And, and so the, the Pharisees said, Jesus, you've got to tell your people to shut up. You know what this looks like? It looks like you're saying that you're the one. And Jesus said, yeah, you know, that's pretty much right. He said, you know, because, and this is another point, this was an appropriate and a necessary act. There was a mustness to this thing. I don't think that's a word, right? Somebody in here is probably an English major or whatever, but I don't think mustness is a word, but just attribute it to my gift of tongues, right? I'm just inventing a new word for the English language. But this had to happen. Because Jesus says, you know, as he's acting this out and coming in, the people are saying to him, you know, you're going to stop. And he said, listen, if all these people fell silent, he said, it would be necessary for creation to declare the same thing. Because this is necessary. This is appropriate. This is right. Because I am the chosen one. I am the Messiah. So if, if, if you know anybody who's this idea, well, Jesus was just a great teacher, but he really wasn't God's son, never really claimed to be the Messiah, this and that. We can just kind of add him alongside of all the other great teachers and philosophers that we have in history and that kind of stuff. What they're literally doing is just ripping Jesus apart because that's not what Jesus taught at all. Jesus made it as crystal clear as he could. I am the one. The chosen one. But this was also a misunderstood act. Because here you have this flash mob that develops, right? Come Friday morning, what's the flash mob going to be doing? Crucify him, right? Crucify him. Now, we don't know if it's the exact same guy, but the sentiment of the population changed from Sunday to Friday morning. Why is that? Because they misunderstood what kind of a Messiah Jesus was going to be. They thought that he was coming. The disciples thought that he was coming to bring political victory. Jesus was coming to bring spiritual victory. That's what he was coming to do. He's come to bring. They thought he was going to have. He was going to triumph over the Romans and throw all of them off and lift up Israel to again being the superpower in the world. And Jesus came to bring triumph over death, so that we might have life that lives forever. And they totally misunderstood who he was. They misunderstood what this event means. And, and it's really in that that you and I see one of the greatest lessons that we can learn about navigating the peaks and valleys of our spiritual journey, of our life here on the planet, is that we need to make sure that we understand, that we see correctly who it is God is. And, and one of the things you see in this event is that 
This is one of the rare moments in the life of Jesus when he walked the planet where who he was and how he was received by the world were in alignment with one another. Right? By Friday morning, they're going to be going this way, right? They're going to be opposing one another. But in this particular case, he is clearly the Messiah. That's who he is. And they're welcoming him as the Messiah, receiving him as the Messiah. Not the Messiah that he's going to be, but the Messiah they think they want him to be. But they're receiving him. And you see the spiritual synergy that's released. And there's joy, and there's peace, and there's celebration, and et cetera. And, and i got to tell you, that is one of the things that you and I need to be seeking in our spiritual journey. That there is an alignment between who Jesus actually is and the way that we're responding to him. That is the key to sustaining spiritual peaks. That is the key to navigating the spiritual valleys, is having there to be an alignment between who Jesus is as Lord, as Savior, as teacher, as guide, etc., who Jesus is and how we are responding to him. So, see, really kind of what we have in our lives is either we can be pulling in the same direction as God, Having that alignment, like if you had, if your car got stuck in a snowbank, right, and you had a 20-foot rope in the back end of it that you could tie onto the hitch and get a bunch of guys to pull, would you want them all to pull in the same direction to try to get the car out? I mean, absolutely, you wouldn't want some of them pulling this way and some pulling that way, whereas the car needs to go that way, right? You'd want them to be pulling in alignment because when not, it's a lot like a tug of war, right? If people pulling this way and people pulling that way and... It's clear whose team won our tug-of-war contest a couple years at our July 4th picnic, and not to rub any salt in the wounds for those of you who lost, but, but when you're pulling against, somewhere along the line, somebody gets pulled in. When you and I are not in alignment with Jesus, we're going to get pulled into a pit where we don't want to go. And, and, and the thing that you and I can learn from Jesus' experience here is that we want who Jesus is and how we respond to him being in alignment. And he is Savior. And we need to respond to him as Savior. He is Lord. And we need to respond to him as Lord. He is teacher, discipliner, shaper, provider, encourager. We need to be responding to all those things. And you can see the fruit that emerges from that. And just real quickly, you, first of all, you see joy, right? They, they, these, when, they, when they were responding to him as the Messiah running in, it says that they just, they just broke out in joy. Now, joy is, is a lot like happiness. It's just that it has nothing to do with your circumstances. A lot of times we can be happy because of our circumstances, right? You know, and, 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 but, or we can be sad because of our circumstances, but joy is an inner culture. It, it's, an inner, it's an inner experience where even in the midst of the good and the bad, there's in a sense where we are whole and we are satisfied and we are at peace and we can celebrate. We have expectations of the good. We have hope. That's joy. And, 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 you know, I've heard it said before, joy is like carrying your own weather with you. It doesn't really matter what it's doing outside. What matters is what you have inside. You know, it's not circumstantial. That, that's what happens when we're in alignment. What happens is we have peace. You know what Jesus said here? He's lamenting over the city of Jerusalem. He says, man, if you had known today what would make for peace. See, man, when you're in alignment, you know what makes for peace. And peace is this sense of, of knowing I have everything that I need that allows me to thrive as I walk with God. 
It's not just the absence of conflict, but it's, it's, the, it's, it's this confidence and this sense that I have everything present that allows me to really be and live the life that God wants me to have. It's peace. It's shalom. And then you see here as well that, that you see at the end of verse 44, and it's, it's earlier, it, you see it as well, is that, that when you and I are in alignment with God, with who God is and how we're responding to him, as, as he is the God that needs to be believed in and we're following in faith, we have the ability to see the eye. We see the activity of God. He says, Jesus says, you are, the city of Jerusalem is experiencing the visitation of God today and nobody's going to get it. It's going to be all around you and nobody's going to see it. And one of the things that really helps us navigate the valleys of our journey and helps us get to the place and sustain the places we'll peak where when you and I are responding to God and with spiritual synergy, we're, we're, fought, we're, we're, we're responding to him as he is. There's that faith alignment. It allows us to see the fingerprints of God. We, we can see the activity of God all around us, right? Some, some of you have had moments like that in your journey. You felt close to God, you know, and you can say, boy, God was in this, and God was in that, and I can't believe he did this, and those kind of, you see all of that. And other times, some of you have backed off quite a bit. Right, God is like, you know, I'll put them on the back burner. I'll get back to it. I got other things going on or whatever. And, and, then, and then you wonder, you look around, well, where's God? Because the ability to see God at work is tied with our alignment with who he is. And even though Jesus was in their midst, they missed the day of his visitation. I don't want that to happen to any of us. All of this stuff we've said this over and over again through us. All of this stuff is energized. It's released in our lives by faith. You see, without faith, it's impossible to please God. This, this is an invitation. Jesus' march, this stage parade into the city of Jerusalem is his challenge to us. Believe. Believe. And it's my privilege today to... Uh, to invite you to align your response to who he is by believing in Jesus as the one. And, and, and if you've never done that, my invitation for you today is to take a step of faith. Acknowledge you need a savior and understand that Jesus is that savior. Acknowledge that you need forgiveness. Understand that Jesus has provided for that through us to the cross. Understand that God offers us a new life and it's energized in our lives by the empty tomb and our belief in the one who left the tomb. My invitation to us today is to believe and experience the alignment that comes from spiritual synergy. Let's pray together for just a moment. Just a minute, we're going to conclude our service as our ushers will come forward and receive your offering and, and your prayer cards and your connection card. There'll also be some folks here to pray for with you at the front if you'd like that after our service. But in these moments, you know, we just pray, God, you know, it's just, it's so easy for me and probably for most everybody in this room. It's just so easy for us to be like the crowd. We can get caught up in the emotion of following Jesus. But it's not because we've really aligned our hearts to following Jesus. God, I pray that we would know the spiritual freedom, the spiritual synergy that's released in our lives when we respond to you in faith, that who you are 
and how we follow you are in alignment. God, do that, we pray today, as we place our faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When you invite, join me in standing as we conclude our service, and I invite our worship team to come.